worship is important to me because it's a way that I prepare myself to come before God. And when I step into that presence and trust in Him and cling on His Word, He's able to move in mighty ways. I just love being able to show people in the community who may not believe in God or just aren't sure what it really means to be a true believer and just act out God in other people's lives and be His hands and feet. served here about 13 years. It keeps me connected to God, but it also, it just fills me with joy. Last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday, and it was a game for the ages. Um, one team down 25 points well into the third quarter. They come back to win dramatically in overtime. There had been half a century of previous Super Bowls, and uh, most all would agree that there's never been one like it before. And most of you, many of you perhaps, watched it. There were 113 million spectators watching the game. But there were only 106 people that actually suited up for the game. Not all of them even played. So I found myself thinking that, that last Sunday that there were 100 million of us watching history unfold. And there were less than 100 actually making history unfold. And I was thinking how different the experience was. And for casual fans like myself that were mildly rooting for one team or the other, I appreciated the game. For diehard New England fans, don't whoop now. There are not that many of you, so you would isolate yourself. But for diehard New England fans, they celebrated this game. But for the, for the 53 on the winning team... Their lives have been marked forever by this game. To their last breath, they'll be remembered for this game. The difference between playing in the game versus being a spectator in the game is huge. We're in this study about uh, the book of Acts, and and so I want to bring us up to speed on it. Very early on in the book, in in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to the disciples, this is the very last day that he will appear after the resurrection, before he ascends to heaven. It's that last day, and he says to them that when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, you'll receive power. And you'll tell people about me in Jerusalem and Judea and throughout Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by that, he means that you will go tell these people, many of them hostile to my name, you will go tell them about me in a way that they actually will, will bend their knee and begin to worship me and follow me radically. It's this mission impossible, and he's saying to them, you're going to have to be more bold than you ever imagined possible, you'll be stepping into the very deep. And so in the verses that unfold, they do the only logical thing. The rest of the chapters fill with them fervently and frequently praying. (laughs) They're thinking, we don't have a chance unless God does more miracles besides the resurrection. We don't have a chance. So they pray. We get to chapter 2, and and it unfolds in verse 4 that the Holy Spirit on that given day actually actually comes and begins to live within those Christ followers, begins to live within their life. And um, to catch us up so we're all on the same page even about that, I I said this last week, the Holy Spirit is not a power or force. The Holy Spirit is is a person. God, according to scriptures, God is, is one God, but one God of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
And just as the Father has all wisdom and all power and all knowledge and love and grace and holiness, so does the Son and so does the Spirit. And so the one that began to live within them that day was God the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, who began to live inside of them, who has all love, all grace, all power, all knowledge, all wisdom. Everything about the Holy Spirit infant began to live within them. Um, and, and I need to say this as well. Um, previous to that time, when you read the Old Testament, you'll find many times that the Holy Spirit would, it would often use the, the term, would come upon someone and in essence would, would join with that person. But it was always just temporary until this given day. It was always for a given assignment in which the person would need the very power of God. And so the Holy Spirit would come and begin to, to reside in them temporarily till the assignment's done and then withdraw again. Now, now it changed. It changed from this day forward. So every single Christ follower, at the moment someone begins to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to live within that person and doesn't leave. Uh, uh, that all began on that day. And, and so the Holy Spirit comes and, and the question then becomes, now that the, they have this power of the Holy Spirit, the question becomes, will it be the apostles that will carry out this mission? Will it be a bigger set? Because in chapter 1 it said that sometimes there were as many as 120 that would gather for prayer that were followers of Jesus. Would it be the 120 that would take on this assignment of telling Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Or, or who would it be? And so chapter 2 is unfolding. The Spirit has come and if you heard last week, we talked about uh, the Spirit created a, a terrific noise that in our terms we'd say sounded like a freight train, which drew people to where the apostles were, and the Spirit created uh, these what appeared to be tongues of fire on their heads, so the spotlight was on them, and they began to all tell about Jesus. And as I said last week, uh, Scripture says that, that they, had, they had 15 different people groups there, 15 different languages, and as the apostles were speaking, everyone understood the message in their own language. And so the response is quite fascinating from the crowd. Some of the crowd realizes this isn't normal, and the question is, what is happening? But some of them jump to a conclusion, and they think they're just drunk. Now... I've been around a few intoxicated people, and, and I've never known a one of them to begin to speak a new language they've never spoken before and speak it fluently. In fact, the opposite is true. Usually the only language they know, they're having trouble speaking fluently. And I think that had to be the case 2,000 years ago, but I think that these people in this camp took the approach, there is no supernatural, and when someone does that, when God has actually shown up, we come to really stupid conclusions. And so they're thinking, oh, they're just drunk, and so they're speaking in 15 different languages. Uh, so don't pay any attention to them. They're just drunk. And so in verse 16, Peter addresses them. He says, no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Now, to give some clarity where it says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, Scripture makes it clear that God is saying upon all people who have trusted their lives to Jesus. Every single Christ follower, we say, I will pour my spirit upon all people that trust Jesus. But then there's this uh, 
conglomeration of people that trust Jesus. It, it covers both genders. It covers male and female. It covers the socioeconomic spectrum. In fact, where it says, I'll pour my spirit even upon servants. Maybe a more literal translation is slaves. And so he's saying across the entire socioeconomic spectrum, I will pour my spirit out. And then upon all ages, it's sons and daughters, young men, old men, I will pour out my spirit. And the implications for the church, the implications for every follower of Jesus is this, is that that it's all participants, no spectators. In the kingdom of God, in the work of God, it is all participants. There are no spectators among the kingdom of God. And so the application is, if you're a follower of Jesus, then, then you're included as a participant. You're included on the mission of Jesus. You're included as one who is saying, I have, I have a path for you that means stepping into the deep. I have a path for you that means going places where your feet may fail, and you'll only succeed if I step in and supernaturally intervene. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're included in that. But I want to also say that if you're a follower of Jesus, those that are younger than you that follow Jesus, maybe it is your children or your friend's children. Maybe it is your grandchildren or your friend's grandchildren. I mean, they're included as well. The ones that are younger than you, even much younger than you, they're included as well. It includes the other direction. It would include your parents or your friend's parents. It would include your grandparents or your friend's grandparents. The entire age spectrum is included. And I want, to f- I want to focus on that age spectrum, if you will, during this time and look at that. And I want to look at biblical history about the spectrum within which God has used people over time. I want to start with John the Baptist very briefly. If you were to read Luke chapter 1, verse 41, the setting is that... Um, uh, Mary has just become pregnant supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, just days before. Her relative, her cousin Elizabeth, has been pregnant for six months with John the Baptist, and Mary goes to visit her, and when she enters the room and, and, uh, and just, just says something to Elizabeth, it says in verse 41, it says, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then three verses later, she says, and when... when when my child heard your voice, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Now, this was John the Baptist who was three months away from actual birth, and God's assignment for him was that he was going to be the one that would tell people, would point to Jesus and say, that is the Messiah, that is the long-awaited Son of God. And we find here that, that John the Baptist hasn't even been born yet. He doesn't even have the mental capacity to put all this theology together, but supernaturally, God has somehow stirred this one that's six months in the womb, stirred this one, and this is the very first act of praise that we see about Jesus coming. And if you will, even in the the leaping in the womb, and Elizabeth understands, my, my child has leapt for joy. It's the very first open proclamation of Jesus the Messiah, and he hasn't even been born yet. And yet God supernaturally has chosen to use this one that, that's still three months away from birth. Now, in our Spark ministry, which is just down the hall, uh, we actually aren't doing ministry to not-yet-borns in that ministry. We actually have a ministry that does that. But in Spark ministry, we take children that are newborns, and I hesitate to say how young because I might get in trouble, but there are little, 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 like four weeks or something. Is that safe to say? Two months. 
Thank you. I was going to be in big trouble. Thank you for correcting me. Two months. So little, little children. And what happens down there, and you could ask Kathy McElveen or Amy Salazar or any of the workers that are down there, you could ask what happens. And they say, the very first time a little one comes in on that Sunday, there'll be people that are working that will be singing worship songs over that child. In that hour, there'll be worship songs and there'll be some prayer and and as that child begins to grow and mature, they said as, as Spark ministry goes on, which goes from newborn to pre-K, whenever that child is able to begin to hum, they're invited to hum. And whenever that child can put words, they're invited to put words. And whenever that child can begin to understand what the words mean, they help them understand. And there's this mindset there that, that God already has called this child to someday come to a point of faith and to come to a life of worship and everything. And the mindset is, we don't know exactly when or how or whatever, but that's the prayer. And we're going to begin right now. If this child is eight weeks old, when the hour is done, there would have been people who have been singing worship songs about God and about Jesus over this child. And there'll be prayers over this child. And then the next week and next and the next year and next and on and on and on, it will happen. It happens in our Spark ministry. I'll give you another biblical example, Samuel the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 20, 21 to 28. A lady named Hannah has finally, by the grace and miracle of God, finally given birth to a child. She's named him Samuel. She's promised God at, at this certain stage of life that she will bring him to the tabernacle where she will leave him to serve God the rest of his life. And as you see how it unfolds, the scholars say it was probably about three years of age that she brings Samuel to the tabernacle. And you can see that he began to serve at that point. From the age of three on, he is serving. And as it unfolds even further, while he's still a boy, while he's still very, very young, while he's still a boy, chapter three unfolds. He's been serving for a few years. There's a, a night that God actually speaks to him and gives him some profound, disturbing information. And right soon after that, uh, the priest that Samuel has been mentored by all these years um, comes to him and says, you have to tell me what God said. And the message is one that says that, it says, Eli, I have told you again and again of your sin and your son's sin. And, and now you'll pay the price. And so there's this little boy that has the message and, and God gave him the message because he would be the one that would be bold enough to tell Eli. And he is. He steps into the deep. I mean, where feet may fail. This is his mentor. This is the one that has all the power over him. And he steps into the deep and he tells Eli, this is what God said. I mean, this is, this is the message of God. I think about our children's ministry because that's probably the age that, that Samuel would be in with our blast ministry, which is kindergarten through fifth grade. And, and what they do in our blast ministry, they, they worship there. By then, the kids are capable of worshiping themselves. They worship there. They pray there. This last fall, for the first time, we put some new words around helping our kindergarten through fifth graders influence their friends and help introduce their friends to Jesus. And we'd been doing, we've been helping them for a long time. We put fresh words. And so we gave them the term uh, top one among our Students and adults, we talk about top three, who would be the three people in your, in your orbit that God would have you try to help them come to know Jesus. Well, we gave, we gave uh, elementary school a top one number. 
And we challenged them sometime this fall. We challenged them to begin to pray for your top one. So it was Catalyst Weekend when we were doing this teaching in a fresh way. And there was a mom that was on the women's Catalyst team. She was on the prayer team. And so she prayed the entire weekend. 72 hours she prayed. Literally, she prayed night and day with some sleep in between. But she prayed hour after hour after hour. And it was a profound weekend. But she came home completely exhausted and spent not another prayer in her bones. So she gets home about supper time, and her daughter, who's in Spark Ministry, is so excited to get through supper so she can bring her mom upstairs and pray. And her mom is thinking, oh, I'm prayed out. And, and she doesn't know about top one, and her daughter begins to pray, saying, I'm praying for my top one, and she names her top one, and she's praying that this friend of hers will come to know Jesus. And, and the mother would tell the story later that week uh, to our, our children's ministry staff, would, would say, there was um, excitement and energy and life that began to rise up within me. And I found myself thinking, I spent the entire weekend praying for other people, but my daughter was here, and she's just in elementary school, and, and your church was teaching her to pray for other people too. When I heard her pray for other people, you've fueled me back up again. And, and this is just, this is a daughter, this is just an elementary Age child who's stepping into the deep, thinking, my, my friend, someday can come to a place of knowing Jesus. It may be now. My friend can do it. I'm going to pray for that. Uh, let me give you another one. David, 1 Samuel 17. We know a lot about David's life through a long history of it, but this is the place where David is still um, a teenager. Experts would tend to land around the age of 15, give or take. He's a teenager. And his nation, Israel, is in dire straits because there's a much more powerful country, the Philistines, that are about to battle them, defeat them, and take them over. But the Philistines have this great plan to to save a bunch of lives rather than a lot of people lose lives. Let's just have one person lose a life. You take your best. We'll take our best. We'll have one fight. Whoever wins, that country wins. And sounds cool until they see who the Philistines pick. They pick a guy named Goliath who's this giant of a man, a warrior of a man, uh, man, he's covered in armor, but, but for days, the Israelites look at him, and no one, they're not fools. You could drown if you step into that ocean. They're not fools. And so this 15-year-old boy shows up, and he sees what's happening, and, and he says in, oh, this is verse 26, he says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? He's allowed to defy the armies of the living God. And David realizes no one's going to challenge him. And so David says, I will. They try to put armor on him. He can't even carry the armor. He's just 15. And so he takes a sling and he gets five stones and he goes out to Goliath. And this is what he says. He says, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And God did. A 15-year-old who would boldly step into the deep to go where feet would certainly fail unless God intervened. And in doing so, he would, stay, he would save his entire nation. So I find myself thinking about our students here at the harbor and what happens in student ministry, and they, they worship 
They deeply worship. They pray. They pray fervently together. They do life on life, real life on life in small groups. They have this, their concept of top three is alive, and they are trying to draw their friends and classmates, in some cases co-workers, to come to know Jesus as well. There are these organic student-led Bible studies that have been popping up in, in the schools, in the community, in other organizational, non-Christian organizations that are popping up. And usually it's, it's one of our students that gets this vision, this idea, I think I'll start a Bible study in, in this setting. And then the leaders will just equip them and launch them off and pray for them and support them in that. I love this. This just happened this very week. In fact, this happened in the last four days. On Wednesday night, our students had, had a powerful teaching about God's beautiful plan of sexuality, the, the beauty of sexuality as God has planned it to be in the commitment of marriage between a husband and a wife. And, and then the teaching unfolds something different than that is a sin, which means God says, this will do damage. Therefore, it's a sin. Don't go there. And, and so at the end of all the teaching around that, and the end of the night, worship night, there were some of the girls there. They, they've already gotten and begun to launch this vision to start a Bible study in their school and invite all their girlfriends to join them. And they're, together they're going to study the Bible about God's plan for sexuality and say, friend, there's a better way. I'm going to follow the better way. Will you follow the better way with me? It, can you say stepping into the deep? You know how countercultural that is, don't you? They don't care. Uh, they don't have to be 25 to be bold or 45 to be bold. They're bold now. They're in the game now. Esther, a young woman, probably 20 to 25, somewhere in that age bracket. You can read Esther chapter 4, verse 16. It's a time where the Israelites are under the Persian Empire. They've been conquered under the Persian Empire, which is this massive empire, one of the most powerful empires of ancient times. And Esther actually is a Jewish woman, uh, and she's been surprisingly chosen as queen, which is a very precarious position. The last queen has been disposed of because the king just got, didn't like what the queen did, and so it's a very precarious position. And at some guidance from, from her family mentor, no one knows she's Jewish. And some time unfolds, and in the Persian Empire, there's this decree that goes out that on a given day, anyone that wants to can, can kill Jewish people and take all their possessions. If your 401k is not going well, I, this is your day to boost your 401k. I mean, what a deal. Just kill anyone that you want that's a Jewish person. There are lots of them around, and you can have all their possessions. And, and so Esther understands, she gets this message, she understands is driven, really driven by God to her, that, that she's the one to put her entire life on the line and go to the king and say, um, by the way, dear, I'm one of the Jews that has a target on my back, and, and I think you need to to do something to save my people. But she knows the odds are against her. And so in chapter 4, verse 16, she says, if I die, I die. If I die, I die. I go there anyway. I will step into the deep. I'll go where feet may fail. But I will obey God. I will be a difference maker. Or at least I'll try to be. And she goes there. And by the spirits moving, the, the king then sides with her and her entire nation is saved. 
a young woman, just a young woman. Week before last, a young mom here at the harbor in her workplace had some conversations with someone about, about God. She could tell this person in the workplace was going through a hard time, so it opened conversation, and she went a long ways with the conversation. She prayed for this person, but last Monday, she was back at work again, and she felt God prompt her to go further, and to go further than talking about God and praying for the person, but to tell everything, and so there's this conversation that unfolds where she tells this person about Jesus and how this person could trust their life to Jesus and have their sins forgiven and begin a real, authentic relationship with the God of the universe. And by the time their conversation is done, this person has given their life to Jesus. And truth be told, and I won't give you more details, but I really think if she'd gone to her employer for permission, the answer would have been, there's, you, there's no way you can do that. If you do that, you're in serious trouble. And she knew that. But the prompting of God... Just, just boldly stepping into the deep. I'll give you two more. Caleb, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and then Joshua 14 and 15. Caleb, uh, it's the time of Moses, and God is going to give the Israelites the promised land. Caleb is one of 12 spies that goes into the promised land to come back and give information. Ten of the spies come back and say, we can't go there because there are giants in the land. We just need to stay in the wilderness better than losing our lives there. And Caleb and Joshua say, uh, who cares if they're giants? Our God is bigger than any giant that exists. And so, so Caleb takes this bold stand against the majority and says, we should go. I mean, God said, go. God said, he'll give us the land. But the majority went out. And so they have to spend another 40 years in the wilderness, God says, until, until every male adult dies, except Caleb and Joshua. He says they get to live. You won't get the promised land until everyone has died except Caleb and Joshua. So 40 years pass. They begin to enter the promised land. They, they fight their way through it. They've fought about five years through it in Joshua 14 and 15. I love this. They, they've been fighting their way through. They've taken all the easy stuff. Like they've taken the you know, the first steps into the land, by God's power, they conquer that. They have conquered the plains. And now what's left is the hill country. And, and there are giants that have lived there, and they're burrowed into the hill country. So Caleb goes to Joshua, the leader of the nation. He's 85 years old now. Goes to them and says, let me take the giants in the hill country. The power of God, I can do it. My first thought is, are you an idiot? you got to be kidding me. But he knows, like 45 years before, God said, I'm giving you the land. And he knows the promise hasn't changed. He says, let me, let me and my buddies. And they do. Joshua 15, 85-year-old Caleb, by the power of God, conquers the giants. Can you say bold? I give you just one last one. Anna, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Anna says lost her husband after seven years of marriage. She died. And now she's 84 years old. And it says in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 37, that she never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. It sounds like she's been there for basically for years. And between the lines, if you understand their history, 
you can understand pretty quickly, she's not praying for another husband. She's 84 years old. She's not praying for kids. She's most likely praying for the Messiah to come. The last prophet had been 400 years in the past, had talked about the Messiah coming. She's 84 years old. She's in the temple, and she's most likely praying, God, send the Messiah, send the Messiah. And on that day, 84 years old, talk about bold prayer. That day, 84 years old, she sees the 40-day-old Messiah that day. She sees Jesus. She's one of the first witnesses to go throughout all of Jerusalem. Jesus is 40 days old. Say, the Messiah's come. He's 40 days old. The Messiah's come. Can you say bold? I, no, I really hesitate to make the comparison to Anna, who is 84 years old, because Joe Roscoe is 83 years young. And so there's no comparison age-wise between Joe Roscoe, who is here at the harbor. This is the last picture you saw on the little video we had. But I've forgotten when Joe Roscoe began to come here and work and serve God at the harbor. It goes back as far as my memory goes. Now she's 83 years old, and when you see her, she's at the front desk on second floor there, and you see her passion. She believes that God has her over right now. It's a vital role. Most of it's behind the scenes. This is a vital role that God could use her in addition to these other things God's doing to have lives changed. When you see her and talk to her, I talk to her every single week. There's this passion that she has. She's in the game. She's not retired. She's not sitting on the sidelines thinking, I'll just watch the others play the game. She is fully, deeply in the game, boldly, week in, week out, showing up, going to make this difference. She knows, she knows God, the power of God is going to make a difference through her. She's in the game. And I think that she's probably someday, prayerfully, long, long time from now, She's going to be like the Apostle Paul, who is my hero of heroes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is what Paul says. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. The prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. She's going to do it to her last breath. That's God's plan. I mean, that's God's intent. There's there's no age limit, young or old. I need to give some clarity around this. The Holy Spirit takes up residence when you trust Jesus. I need to say this for the sake of many of you. To trust Jesus means to believe he's alive and to prayerfully ask him to forgive your sins. To say, I, I need forgiveness. I have sinned. I need forgiveness. Please forgive my sins. And ask him to lead your life with the intent of following, with the real intent of following. And the moment you begin that life in authenticity, you're a follower of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has begun to live within you. Football is really a spectator sport. This past year, there were over 2 million 6 to 12-year-olds that played organized football and a few more million that played disorganized football <laughs> this past year. And most all of them, I can tell you from my own experience from a long time ago, most all of them were dreaming of playing in the Super Bowl one day. But of the 2 million organized and more millions of disorganized, 
Less than 500 of them will ever make it to the Super Bowl. It's really a spectator sport. But following Jesus is not a spectator sport. God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on the, on the servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. If you are a follower of Jesus, you and I are not just invited into the game of all games. We're commanded into the game of all games. Why does he command? He doesn't want us to miss it. It's not that he's a slave driver. He doesn't want us to miss it. We got one shot, one life. Doesn't want you and me to sit in heaven one day and have been in the spectator seats with 100 million other people. He wants us someday to be in heaven and, and know we were part of the story. You and I are continually called into the deep where our feet will fail unless God intervenes. We're continually called by God to, to, to step into the deep. We're continually called by God to be bold. Many of you are living that out. Many of you are living that out. And I would say, I say feel the smile of God. He's making history through you. Some of you maybe not living that out, maybe hesitant to step into the deep where feet may fail, and I would just say, trust him. Trust him. The day will come, you will not regret it. Trust him, wherever he's calling you to do that. Yeah, we're, not, we're not called to watch history unfold. We're called to be the vehicle to make history with God working through us. There was a song we first sang a decade ago, it's called Hosanna. The second verse, the first time we sang it, I got chills. The second verse is, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith, with selfless faith. I see a near revival stirring as we pray and seek. We're on our knees, we're on our knees. And the first time we sang that a decade ago, I could think of people in that new generation. I could think of some that were 15 and 20 years old, and I could see they were already taking their place. And now a decade has passed, and I've seen some of those that are now 25 and 30. I've seen them this morning, and they've taken an even bolder place now. And it's not just the 15, 20-year-olds that I saw, but, man, a decade ago I saw a 73-year-old who had taken her place. Now she's 83, and she's taken even more boldly. So we're about to sing this song, and I know there are a small number have to go back to serve, but the rest of you don't leave. Four or five minutes and take in the words of this song, especially the second verse, and realize God has called you in your generation to be in the game now, to boldly step into the deep. Father, thank you that you give us more than just a, a seat to watch. I know there are many times that would be much more comfortable, but much, much less fulfilling much, much less the fulfillment of who you made us to be, who you called us to be. And so I pray, Father, that all of us that are Christ followers, we would have increased courage, increased vision about where the step is for us, and we would, we would continue to step if we have been, we would begin to step if we haven't, into that deep where you've called us about life change to take place. And then I pray, Father, this deep prayer for those that until now have never trusted Jesus with their life that they would choose this time to believe your son is indeed alive and listening. And my prayer is that they would say, 
to him, please forgive my sins. I need forgiveness. And please lead my life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.